so we, we pick up in our ser- series that I've titled No Direction Home, uh, not just because I really like Bob Dylan, but because we're exploring this question, how do Christians end up wandering from God's truth? Um, so please, in your Bibles, turn to the letter of James. Let's just, before we begin, just have a, a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you that we, we have your word, and we just quickly pray that you would really allow us to hear your voice speak into our lives, both as a church and as individuals this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, um, we'll finish off um, a section. So we've looked at the, the first part of the opening to the letter, and now we'll be reading from verses 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So if you've uh, been with us through James, we've started reading this, this letter together. And if we've understood the first 12 verses, we know that God uses hardship in our lives to make our faith stronger. He gives us strength to endure and to be patient. And in the end, receive the crown of life. We're making our, our way home to our Father. And because he is good, he uses the hardships along the way to help get us there. As we read on today, James explores the the flip side of of that dynamic in a way. We can trust God uses trials for our good, but in temptation, we can become deceived and end up distrusting God. The usage of the word temptation in things like marketing and media has lost its, uh, its impact and its meaning of evil. So this morning, I'd like us instead of thinking about resisting a donut in your, on your diet, to think of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. As soon as he's anointed with God's Holy Spirit, he, he faces the evil of the devil's temptation, and God's Holy Spirit gives him the power to resist, the power to resist the devil's will to worship him instead of God. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, we see that each time the devil attempts to deceive Jesus, Jesus responds with profound trust, not only in God, but but especially in his word of truth. Three times when Jesus uh, is, is tempted by the devil, three times Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He is being tempted 
but he is trusting in God, in the word of truth, and he finds there refuge, support, stability, security, all in God's word of truth. Earlier this morning, we prayed the Lord's Prayer together to our Father, and we prayed that he would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in our passage, we see that one way our Father answers that prayer, the ultimate way is is giving us his word of truth. And that's our, our big point of this passage, that we have a Father who we can trust. He gives us his word of truth, even when we are in temptation. So our first point from verses 13 to 15 is that God's will is to deliver us from evil. But there are people who do not believe that. And in fact, James is clearly writing to people who are saying the opposite. They distrust God and believe their father has led them into temptation. Look down with me at the first part of verse 13. Let no one say, which means they're very much saying this, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. How can they say that? Do they understand what they are implying by such a statement? Well, James says the rest in verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is is holy. As the seraphim said, he is holy, holy, holy. So for God to take his people and tempt them to worship the devil surely means God himself has been tempted by evil. But as we know, it is God's will to deliver us from evil. Right from the, the beginning of the story, when mankind first fell into to sin, God's will has been to defeat evil by sending a serpent crusher. God promised this, Jesus fulfilled this promise, and by his spirit we are delivered from evil. But some people can get confused about this dynamic, confused about who God is and who they are, and why bad things happen in in this world and, and and in their lives. In temptation, instead of trusting God, they distrust him, his character and his will. And James is writing to a group of people who are clearly in this situation. They are They're asking the wrong questions about the wrong person. They are in the midst of temptation and have become unstable in their their trust of God, of, of God's character, and blame and accuse God for the evil in their life and the situation they are in. But I think you can, you know, if we're being generous, we can imagine how these Christians have found themselves in this in this situation. They've been scattered among the nations of the world. Um and on, on ground level, it's a world where there are multiple religions, uh, there are supposedly multiple gods, multiple versions of what is true, what is morally right and wrong, all sorts of different schools of philosophical thought. A bit of sort of context, James is said to have written this around AD 60. Well, in, in exactly AD 60, uh, what the world looked like is that the Roman Empire is taking over everything. It's becoming a real powerful figure of authority. But the Roman Emperor Nero set fire to Rome, he killed his wife, he killed his mother, and then four years later killed himself. 
very, very unstable. And so I'm not saying that our political leaders today will set fire to London or Edinburgh or anything like that. But I think we can think of at least one questionable act in recent times where we might mistrust them. It's not a world or an environment that says, trust people. Your mum never said, trust strangers. Well, I hope not. Anyway. I mean, let's not even get started on like the media, their biased, subjective agendas or social media and their fake news. We don't need to say much about the celebrities, the, the figures that we thought we could trust but turned out to be deeply immoral. So who can we trust? We, we live in a time when we are almost daily affirmed that, yeah, we were right to mistrust them. And yet at the same time as Christians, we're, we're aiming to be daily trusting in God. So in some ways, if you're, if, you're un, if you're divided by whether or not you can trust God, it's like being stretched in, in two directions. And this stretching is how Christians end up wandering from God's truth. This is how a person loses sight of our direction towards our, our Father. God is, is not to blame for the evil in life. And he's not to blame for people being lost in temptation. And what James wants us to know, as we will come to see in this passage, that trusting God is, is not just about feeling he is trustworthy. Uh, this morning on the radio, someone was on uh, presenting this book that they've published about how we need to stop, you know, in, in, in faith and religion, we need to stop worrying about facts and truth, and instead we need to, to understand our feelings. And he said he, he's never met someone who believes in Jesus other than they just felt it. You know, maybe that is true. I'm sure God uses feelings. He does use feelings. We know that. But how much can we really trust our feelings? Trusting God comes from receiving, embracing, and daily feeding on God's word of truth. We don't have to blindly trust that God has a good character who will deliver us from evil. We can hear our Father's voice. We can know his character, and we can cling to his truth. But the reality is, we will all know of Christians who have started to become unstable in their faith at one time or another, and question God's goodness, and perhaps even been moved to blame him for being lost in temptation. James is writing to these exact people, and saying they can only blame themselves because they are following their desires. Look down at 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. As I said, we're exploring this question, how do Christians end up wandering from God's truth? How does this this happened where people distrust his word and, and give up on the beautiful, glorious welcome that awaits us. Well, people drift from the path one step at a time because they're being lured and enticed away from God by their own desire. And look what happens in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. 
and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We either listen to our Father's trustworthy voice, or we listen to the desires within us. I I mentioned earlier how in the beginning of the story, it was God's will to deliver us from evil. Well, in that moment in the garden when sin was born and, and corrupted the human flesh, we see the dynamic of how desire can change the way we think about God and distrust what he says. In the Garden of Eden, I think Eve doesn't initially seem to desire the forbidden fruit. She doesn't seem to desire the fruit until the devil turns up as the the serpent. In fact, the way she initially answers the devil suggests she is happy to trust what God has said, and she proclaims his word of truth. But then the devil pulls on the strings of her desire and twists them with his deceitful lies about God. And so in the end... She saw that the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve was uh, willing to listen to her desire and in the end she was tempted to sin against God. It's what happened to Eve. It's, It's happening to the people receiving this letter And it's happening to us today. We are tempted to sin against God. And being tempted is not wrong. But it is wrong when we place our trust in our inner voice above the voice of our Father. What we think, what we prefer, what we know. We think what we know is more important than God's word of truth. And so in the end, we're actually moved to do a sinful act. This is Jane's diagnosis of the problem with the people he's writing to. He's showing them where they've gone wrong. The, the section 13 to 15 is, is all about James explaining the disease, the way people under pressure of temptation have become infected by their desires and their move to sin against God. And at this point, there are only two options, really. Um, Option one, blame God. God put those desires in my heart. God hasn't given me enough money. God should have given me a husband or a wife. God should have given me a better husband or a better wife. God didn't give me children. God should have given me better children. The The list goes on, of course. In all these ways, we we sin and we become deceived and we blame God for our sinful actions. From what James says in this section, this seems to be the option the recipients of this letter have been taking. And this is not unprecedented. This is nothing new. This is not a new option or response that is uh, individual to them because Going back to the garden, think about what Adam said to God after sinning when he he ate the fruit. God asked Adam, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And so Adam, who's been tempted and followed his desire instead of God's word not to eat from the tree, he replies with option one, blame God. The woman whom you 
gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. God responds, oh, well, I'm very sorry, Adam. That's totally on me. Not, not really. No. How does God respond to being blamed? Well, not well. He curses them. And as crazy as it sounds, people choose the curse. In reality, they, they choose option one. It's God's fault, not mine. But for people who don't really know what God is like, it doesn't seem like a crazy option. How many times have you heard someone who, who's never spent time with God's word of truth, they've never heard God's voice, but they're willing to question his character and blame him for things based on the lies they've accessed from every possible place but from the Bible? Usually it's something perhaps they've Googled or someone they've spoken to or Perhaps they've watched The Da Vinci Code, which is a, great, is a good film. <laughs> I was thinking of one example recently. I was speaking to someone who said, you know, yes, I, I believe in God, but why should I trust God if he keeps sending me all these bad things in my life? How many times have, have we heard that? Or, or why, couldn't, why wouldn't God want me to do this if he put it in my path. We have to be careful blaming God for evil. We need God to deliver us from evil. And if we're not trusting in God, then who's left? Option two, don't blame God, but instead blame the evil desires of our own heart. We can't repent if we, if we don't take a look at what's going on inside and face up to the reality of our, our sinful ways and take responsibility. And if you're here this morning and secretly you've been lured or enticed by desire, please take option two. Please repent. God wants you to repent. This is the remedy, the treatment of the disease. If and when any of us fall into desire, we should be desperately confessing to God, not questioning him. Let us pray for deliverance from evil, deliverance by the God who can and will if we draw near to him, if we come with honesty and humility with our sinful hearts, seeking to be made clean by the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness is always waiting for us, the Lord's capacity to love will always cover our capacity to sin. So our second point, verses 16 to 18. God's will is to raise us by his word of truth. And I, and I say to you as, as my church family, just as James says in this letter, look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. We cannot be deceived about what is true of God and what is true of us. We are born sinful creatures, dead in our sin. And God's will is to take hold of us in his infinite love, breathe new life into us, and raise us as his children with his good 
and perfect word of truth. Let's see how, how James now moves from wrongly distrusting God because of our desires to rightly trusting him. Verse 17 and 18. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Notice how James really highlights the holy love of our Father, our Father who gives us only good and perfect gifts, the creator of all things, who is not like his creation, which is so changeable as a light eventually passes into shadow. No, God, he is infinitely good, infinitely loving, forever and always trustworthy. And it is God's own will to actually raise us as his children. That's what is meant by this clunky phrase, brought us forth by. It's a, it's a childbearing th- phrase. Our Father is raising us by his word of truth. And it's interesting to, to note that J- James doesn't just say, look, you lot, trust God's word. He develops this, this image of God the Father, who is an, has an abundance of good and perfect gifts. A father who creates but is not like his mistrusting creatures. A father who is nurturing, feeding, and protecting us by his word of truth. Our father is one of infinite love that stretches beyond time and space. And his love is what leads and shapes the way he raises his children. Now, if that strikes a chord with you, that the Father loves us, I would really ask you to go back to Rupert's series that he did on the the Father's Prayer. Um, Not all of us know uh, of a human father who does love us or knows how to love us. One of the hardest things for me in becoming a a Christian was actually dealing with this, this image of God as Father because I didn't have that really positive background. So I do, I do recommend going back to Rupert's series and maybe reach out to, to me or one of the elders and, and maybe do it as a one-to-one over a few cups of coffee just to pray and, and talk about that. It's very hard to get our, our minds around when we try and compare them sometimes with the fathers that we've known. We've never known a, a sinless love, a love that is always trustworthy, so sacrificial and powerful. Our Father sent his Son, the Word who became flesh, to take hold of us, give us new life, and bring us into the glorious future. Look down again at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It was God's decision, his will, to bring us forth by his word of truth. And James's way of phrasing it is just open enough to interpretation to include the full breadth of the word. 
with Rupert. We're, we're going through uh, John's Gospel together. If you remember those words of the, the opening to chapter 1, which I'll read for us now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word who is God's voice, the word we read in scripture, the word who is the person of Jesus, our King. Our Father is raising us by his word, and he is raising us into what it says at the end of verse 18. The first fruits of his creatures. But what does it mean to be a, a kind of first fruits? Well, it's a, it's a term that comes from the, the offering of the first crop of the harvest. It's something that has evolved in application through time and through the Bible, from offering crop to offering wealth, all as an act of worship and trust in God. What James has in mind, as we will later see in chapter 3, is not a harvest of, of wheat, but a harvest of righteousness. And what James is saying here at the start of his letter is that it's not harvest time just yet, but God is growing his crop, and he is growing by the means of his word of truth. Just turn with me quickly to chapter 5, and we'll read a couple of verses. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We are in the growing process, but it requires a great amount of patience and trust in the process. It requires a great amount of trust in our Father. God's will is to raise us by his word of truth. And so let us embrace this growing process. Let us hold tight to the word of truth. And in being tempted, let us be trusting in God. We've come to the, the end of James's opening in this letter. So in summary... He's really urging us to position ourselves as stable, steadfast, patient Christians who trust in God, not swayed by hardship, knowing God can use it for good, not lost in temptation, deceived by our desire. James wants us to position ourselves correctly as we take this pilgrimage, this long walk home to our Father. And the best way to position ourselves, to focus our thoughts, to settle our hearts, is to keep trusting in God, is to know that he is holy, holy, holy. And so before we, we sing of this glorious truth, let us just take a moment to pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for, for your word that you have given us. 
inspired scripture and in your son. Above all else, Father, we thank you that you are a father that we can trust. You are a father that loves us infinitely. You are a father with a love for us like we have never known before. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.